capitalism is a global system that for the last 500 years has facilitated environmental catastrophe. Now it's a crisis that has ballooned into a once unimaginable existential threat for all life on the planet. I saw the best minds of my generation hypnotized by a doomsday clock, tick-tocking ten years to keep the planet from warming past the point of no return. I saw other great minds believe and proselytize individual actions, like riding your bike to work or purchasing electric cars, truly believing that if enough people did their part, they'd save humanity from climate catastrophe. And I saw other great minds lost in an acidifying sea, dreaming up far-off speculative futures, utopias, and never stepping back on shore. Many have said it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. I get why people say that. But to be perfectly honest, it's not that hard to imagine what an eco-interested, post-capitalist society might look like. The eco-socialist dream is for a society built on an abolition of hierarchy, replaced by directly democratic systems. It is a dream full of people using free, carbon-negative modes of transportation, cities sustaining themselves with regenerative agriculture, and people finding the joys in participating more fully in their society because they have time to do so. In this dream, art flourishes because opportunities abound in making it and taking it in. The ability to conjure a utopia in opposition to catastrophe is not that hard. Our real problem is, it's easier to live the status quo of capitalism than it is to live a life of incremental action in constant motion stepping toward an eco-socialist future. Welcome to another episode of Conversations on Anares. I'm Dr. Joseph Orozco. I'm a professor of philosophy at Oregon State University, and I'm the co-director of the Anares Project for Alternative Futures. The Anares Project is a forum for conversations, projects, and initiatives that imagine a future free of domination, exploitation, war, and empire. Here on Conversations on Anares, we talk with scholars, activists, and artists about the possibilities for radical social transformation today. We opened up today with scenes from the short film Steps and Strikes by dancer and choreographer Shane Skolpatz. Shane is a recent graduate of the master's program in environmental humanities here at Oregon State University, and this film is a culmination of his work. His film hopes to address the provocative question, why did the environmental movement fail to protect us from ecological crisis? We sat down with Shane to discuss his answer to this question. We talk about the ways in which global capitalism has dispossessed billions of people around the world and created the conditions for climate catastrophe. 
But we also talk about the ways in which people resist using the labor movement to build organized people power against corporate control of the environment. The big issue today is how do we bridge the labor movement and the environmental movement? An answer to this question involves the way Shane has chosen to resist, and that involves dance. Invoking the legacy of a radical dance movement from the 1930s, the Workers' Dance League, Shane has decided to explore how dance can be a way to expand the radical imagination and to get us to think about the ways to build connection between social movements. Art in general, but dance in particular for Shane, can help develop emotions like joy and ecstasy and sustain a guiding vision toward a more collective, just, and ecologically attuned future. So let's turn now to our discussion with Shane Skopitz. So Shane, uh, welcome to the program. I'm glad to have you here today. Yeah, thank you, Joseph. I'm really excited to be here and thank you for the opportunity and the, and the conversation. So I want to talk to you about your film, uh, uh, Steps and Strikes. I was wondering if you could, for a viewer who um, hasn't seen your film, if you could describe what they would come across in this short essay that you produced. Sure. Um, yeah, so I'd really like to say, you know, that your work, your word, uh, your use of the word essay is exactly right in a way. And that's not necessarily typical how dance works. Uh, the work I make is formulated around kind of my conception of choreographic essays. And so to talk about that a little bit, what I mean is that I'm coming from a contemporary dance tradition, which comes out of postmodern dance. And what that allows is kind of a formulation of being able to weave different elements and mediums together in a choreographic way. So what that means, you know, is practically is I can take text, I can take uh, visual stimuli, whether it be uh, natural or industrial imagery or uh, body moving in the space uh, and weave that with music and ideas. And so all of these things kind of flow together to become one tapestry and choreography is the tool uh, and my tool to be able to do that kind of weaving. Um, so it's important to know that this is not a typical film. It's not a documentary, it is an art film. And so in that way, the pacing is different. The pacing of it is choreographic. So the kind of best example of that in the film is it starts with this uh, scene in the desert. You see kind of two figures off in the distance moving and there's a very slow fade up uh, from black. So that's kind of like uh, as if the curtain was rising very, very slowly. Um, so in a little bit more detail, what your viewer, what the viewer might see is, uh, you know, images of me dancing in a space. There will also be images uh, out in nature, there will be images of me just walking, there will be images that are designed to be metaphor, like me just falling over and over and over again. And uh, all that is, you know, in collaboration and woven together with 
uh, a narrative text that's uh, throughout the piece. And so you have, you know, 30 minutes, a 30 minute monologue. So the viewer is able to uh, make connections between the images and the text, you know, in the way that makes sense to them. Um, so that's a little bit of what Steps and Strikes is. Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, one thing about just sort of the production of it. Um, so you, you mentioned there are these location scenes, which some, you know, the desert scenes that you have are, are just quite beautiful. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and then you, you also have location scenes in uh, forests in the Pacific Northwest, which again, are, are quite striking. So congratulations on some really beautiful uh, cinematography. Um, and then uh, interspersed with some of these location scenes, you have uh, shots of you in a kind of studio performance space with wooden floors in which you are, you know, you're doing the, the as you put it, the, the sort of the falling down sequences. Um, I, I was wondering, partly you did a lot of this filming, I take it during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, were some of the solo scenes of you dancing, was that uh, done? Uh, did you have to sort of factor COVID in when you were doing a lot of this in terms of the production of the film in that way? Was Did, did COVID sort of create restrictions or constraints in terms of how you created the film? Yeah, th thank you for that question. I think it's good to know that the whole film is actually a COVID-19 project in a way. It, my, my original conception of the project was that it was gonna be a live performance and things shifted, um, you know, obviously quite dramatically. Those shots specifically in, in the wooden space is not necessarily COVID related, but it is, uh, available to me that space is available to me because of COVID in a way and the fact that it feels so empty and so vacated I think is you know just kind of serendipity that that it happened because I actually feel like that part of it works really well in kind of the the narrative and also the kind of container I wanted to place this my solo voice inside of so I think it really aids in that way and I think in some way art is always going to be a product of its time, whether some of these things are uh, designed in, in the way that you might think about it or not, so. Yeah, that, yeah, that, thank you, I, I appreciate that. That was something that I was wondering about as I was watching this film. Well, so let's talk a little bit about the themes of this film. Um, one of the major themes of your film is this realization that you talk about uh, in the first part of the film that the environmental movement as you describe it, has failed to protect the world from a drastic ecological crisis. Could you explain what you mean by this? Uh, and what do you have in mind when you are describing the environmental movement and its failures to alter or transform the world? Sure. So I just want to start by saying that when I talk about the environmental movement, Today, I'm talking about it in kind of the broadest sense of that category. So this is going to include everything from uh, preservation of land and water all the way through environmental justice and climate justice struggles. So, but the film also traces my kind of transformation in thinking and how I'm coming from a background where 
I was less aware of some of the racialized elements of how the environment has been weaponized against marginalized people um, historically and is still happening today. And, and so I think that I'm kind of in the film doing this transformation from an ethic that is about uh, mostly about wilderness preservation and the separation of man and nature and uh, transforming into and evolving into a person that sees a much broader view of what the environmental movement is and what environmentalism is in that it encompasses uh, the idea and ethic that humans live inside of the environment and are of the environment. So in this terms of, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that sort of traces, right, the kind of movement of environmentalism, right, in the 20th century from this kind of movement in the, you know, throughout most of the 20th century from sort of, like, as you pointed out, right, a focus on preserving natural wilderness spaces to something that started to happen in the 60s and 70s, you know, as a, I think as a response to like civil rights movements, right, uh, thinking about uh, the impact of environmental decisions on racialized communities. So you start to see the evolution of the environmental justice movement in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So that, you know, that sort of tracks that kind of, that kind of movement, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think, um, you know, for me, obviously I, uh, I'm coming from a position of privilege and as a white person and, had to come through a recognition that my scope and viewpoint was very skewed in a way uh, that didn't have a way to kind of comprehend and understand these other struggles and what you know what a toxic waste incinerator in your backyard actually means, for example. Um, and that's one of the great things that I think graduate school gave me was the ability to access this kind of information in a way that I could sit with it and be with it and learn from it and change my, my perspective. Um, so in terms of environmental catastrophe uh, not being addressed by the environmental movement, you know, I think the biggest issue here is that um, well, a lot of it has to do with a prescription that I make in the film, a diagnosis that capitalism is a fundamental root cause of environmental catastrophe, and the environmental movement in that kind kind of broadest sense of the category has not really formally. Uh, in most cases, fully directly uh, assessed that as an issue and um, and and uh, activated their around that kind of uh, formation of anti-capitalist politics that would make space for environmental flourishing uh, today and in the future. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So, you know, one of the major themes in this, you know, one of the, like you said, you know, just now is this realization that you have during the film that um, that part of what was causing the, the loss of wilderness spaces, part of what was putting incinerators in these kinds of communities are these economic incentives, these perverse incentives created by capitalism. So, so part of what you say in the, in the film, I think, is that capitalism is this kind of major force in 
generating the kinds of environmental catastrophes that we see today. So when you when you when you think about capitalism and you see it as this cause of the crises that we're in, what, what do you what are you envisioning? What is capitalism for you? And and what is the the thing that environmentalism was missing about understanding capitalism? So I think you know there's kind of there's many nuances to this topic and how we kind of look at the way capitalism causes environmental destruction i think i just want to focus on maybe two that um come to mind right away and the first one is almost the mo the the obvious one uh, if i could say that you know it's this idea that capitalism is a system based on uh un unregulated uh constant growth and this like capitalism needs that to be what it is it is in its name and that is fundamentally incongruent with how ecology works because there are limits to what a healthy ecological system looks like and that kind of constant growth constant extraction uh and facilitates kind of an inability to adapt to uh, an ethic that sees nature as something not only a utility, not only something to uh, accumulate capital from. So that's the first part. And the other part is related. I think in a way capitalism uh, is a system that uh, reinforces uh, domination, whether that be domination of humans by humans or humans to nature. And so this is all kind of interrelated and linked in how we are able to build an ecological society that is full of flourishing, full of uh, a nourishing environment that provides uh, enough of material needs uh, for everybody on the planet in a safe and healthy way. And that's, you know, most clearly evident uh, by the climate crisis as we're kind of barreling towards uh, scarier and scarier times. Yeah, this reminds me, uh, I, I'm not sure, uh, I don't remember if you uh, mentioned this, but um, uh, it reminds me of the kind of analysis that uh, uh, Vandana Shiva gives Right where she says that part of the, the the incongruity, I guess, between you know what you're calling capitalism and uh, an ecological worldview is that the sort of capitalism proceeds from what she calls a a, a dead earth uh, perspective. That is that the earth is uh, material, but it's inert, it's dead, and its 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 value comes from its resourcefulness for uh, humans, right? So it's human, uh, it's natural resources, and that when you think from an ecological standpoint, the way the ways in which that framework develops in terms of extraction economies and continual growth, as you point it, that's incompatible with thinking about keeping ecological systems flourishing. So what you need to do to keep ecological systems flourishing is not the same thing that you need in order to extract profit from natural resources. So there's this incongruity she talks about that's really at the, uh, 
uh, at the heart of the kind of world that we're in. And she, like you, says, you know, this is uh, this is partly about capitalism or mostly about capitalism. She also adds colonialism right to this mix. But uh, I think the same sort of point is being made is that there's a, a major sort of social economic imperative going on that drives our societies today that is really uh, uh, different than what it means to think about flourishing ecosystems. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think the colonialism element is um, kind of wrapped up in that, that capitalism reinforcing hierarchy in a way. I mean, colonial projects are often capitalist projects. And I'm glad you brought up Vanda Shiva because I know she's written a lot about the green revolution in India. And that's all about kind of uh, monocropping and uh, kind of... Uh, and this gets me thinking a little bit. I've been reading a lot of Murray Bookchin recently. And one of the main points he's making in his formation of a philosophy called social ecology is he's talking about how uh, ecological societies will be, uh, you know, in that utopian vision will have, will be full of uh, diversity and uh, spontaneity. And so, you know, when you think about capitalism and how it needs to get focused down into a monocrop, that's that's just the opposite of what it means to have a diverse culture, whether that be a diverse uh, human population or ecological population and how those things uh, relate to each other. Yeah, no, that's uh, uh, those are important connections. And I'm glad I'm glad to, that you're bringing a bookshin too in this because he seems very relevant. Um, but, when, you know, I want to get to the, uh, what I consider to be one of the mo most important parts of your work. You have this diagnosis at the beginning of it. Right. But um, I think, you know, the the real interesting part of your work is the the way in which you think about responding to the kinds of crises created by capitalism. And one of the other sort of uh, kinds of awakenings, you might say, that you had or one of the things that sort of started to uh, generate in your mind uh, was the idea of labor organizing. So you, you became involved in labor organizing as a grad student. And so, I, you know, and you start to see the importance of thinking about environmentalism and labor in your film. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see the labor movement as an important factor in combating climate catastrophe. Sure. So with this diagnosis of capitalism being a root cause of uh, environmental catastrophe, I think it's important to start thinking about well, what what are the levers of power regular people have that can fundamentally change this relationship between humans and this overarching system that we live under? And um, so my thinking here is largely influenced by Jane McAlevey, who's a labor scholar and activist. And, um, and so she talks a lot about how the last 50 or 60 years, then, you know, the left in general in the United States hasn't been super effective. And part of the reason that is, is because it's too focused on ineffective modes of, or methods for, for social change. She argues largely, you know, we've been focused on advocacy and uh, mobile, mobilizing. 
And so what that looks like is, you know, maybe the Sierra Club club in, in boardrooms kind of making deals. It's kind of this circle of elites making deals, you know, in, in a way on behalf of the people for their cause, but it doesn't have that many connections to regular people and, and their real needs and their stated real needs. And mobilizing, on the other hand, is, you know, this great display of people in the streets uh, without a lot of power without without a lot of uh you know actual response from politicians and policymakers and uh you know what that looks like is maybe like the climate march or the women's march where you get actually hundreds of thousands of people in the streets partly aided by social media these days but of all those people you know they most of the time they show up for the march and then go home and and don't do that much for the cause afterwards and so there's kind of all this energy that is untapped and, and so what Jane McAlevey talks about is that there's a real need to do organizing. Um, and that is about, you know, having one-on-one -on -one conversations with people uh, that think like you or uh, that don't think like you. And it's really about kind of uh, talking to them about that, uh, an issue that you're interested in and, and seeing if there's a way to kind of find similar values in a way where they might be able to come to a similar conclusion to you in how they assess the power dynamics that are uh, making their, their material reality what it is. And, and so the reason I kind of like rely in my assessment on uh, labor organizing is that I just think that part of our biggest tool in trying to change capitalism as a system, which if it needs to change to have ecological flourishing is, uh, is the strike power. And so that is, um, you know, just fundamentally the most powerful tool regular ordinary working class people have in changing the system that they're in. Um, and so I think, it can be hard to kind of make this leap of, well, where does environmentalism come into that? And I think, you know, this is, these are things that we don't necessarily have to always think about as being related in a, like a constant one-on-one -on -one conversation. Um, you know, I think there's so much labor activism these days happening in uh, with nurses and teachers, which are both uh, care work jobs. And these work, these jobs are never really talked about in what a green job is. But if you think about it, these are green jobs. Uh, people are not, um, you know, working uh, to extract uh, minerals from the earth in that kind of way. And so oftentimes when you talk about green jobs, it's kind of very, uh, masculine focused, industrial focused. And I think that, you know, the more labor organizing we can do, especially also in, in care work and kind of a formation around that and service work, um, we will find our way into talking about uh, climate catastrophe for sure. I mean, I just saw um, that the local donut shop in Portland, they have a um, Voodoo Donuts, they have a union and they just went on strike in this most recent heat wave. And so in a, in a way, you know, their workplace got so hot because of climate catastrophe. There it was, they, they had a strike. I think 
it's on, you know, kind of the media public sphere to kind of sometimes tease out these relations that actually these workers are on strike because of climate change, because the climate has changed the conditions of their workplace so severely that they are, they are shutting down the production of their, their workplace. So, yeah, so let me see if I understand these, uh, the, the connections that you're working with so far. So part of it is, is that you've, you've diagnosed capitalism as a root cause of the environmental crises that we are now really starting to see unfold in dramatic and uh, drastic ways. And then you're saying that one of the ways to confront that force has traditionally been through labor organizing, through the, the collective power of working folk to regulate, to constrain, to restrict the unregulated power of capitalism. And so uh, part of your work is, is thinking about the, the tactics and strategies about gathering that kind of people power together, right? And so, and so, and thinking about how then can the labor movement encompass the worries about climate catastrophe, right? So, so part of it is this kind of focus on capitalism and then the response of labor organizing. But one of the really interesting things then that you do in this, right? If you were hearing this, it'd be like a very sort of standard kind of interesting sociological or philosophical, you know, it'd be like, oh, that's very interesting. Let's talk about the details or the policy behind all this. What then you do in all of this is then you say, and dance can be a force for helping us to imagine the kinds of strategies and tactics and world that can be an alternative to capitalism and that can help us in thinking about how to organize power. So you as an, as an artist, as a dancer, enter into that complicated political, social, economic discussion by saying, and dance has something to say in all of this. And that's what I find really interesting about uh, your work. And so I'm kind of curious then, um, how can dance be a way to help us imagine solutions to the crises of capitalism and and climate change. I mean, what does it mean to think of dance as a form of radical social movement action? And, and not just as a kind of form of elite entertainment for certain kinds of classes of audiences. Yeah, so I think for me, I just wanna broaden the question a little bit and say that I think actually it's contemporary art in general um, that has this kind of power uh, to talk about a utopian vision. And I think radical or revolutionary projects uh, kind of need that constant continuous uh, building of what the utopia is. And so contemporary art is uniquely suited in a way to build that and talk about it unrestrained. There, there, there aren't critics or uh, statistics that say, well, that'll never happen. Artists have, and in that, in that ability, in that power, I think there's almost a moral obligation to, to put that utopian vision out there in the world, uh, to be part of the kind of uh, the public discourse in what that looks like. And, and so, you know, that's kind of how I think about contemporary or in general in its role in, in radical politics. 
so dance specifically, what I love about it is in a way is also what's hard about it is that not that many people have uh, experience watching dance experience um, seeing uh, what it, what it's like to, to, to be in a, in a theater and watch a dance performance. This just hasn't happened for that many people. And so what dance is able to do is from that very beginning of a especially like something like my film where the pacing is changed from the very beginning, it already puts the viewer in a space where they think, okay, well, this is something new. This is something different. Uh, as you know, just watching a body move in the space in a way that's kind of abstracted will say, well, I haven't seen something like this before. It's a little bit unsettling. And so in that way, it kind of levels the playing field and allows for that utopian vision to kind of seep in, in a way that it might not otherwise, if you were, you know, maybe reading a science fiction book, or you might just bring a lot more criticism to the vision. Um, than you would. And I think that's one of, you know, dance's great powers and probably is underutilized in a lot of ways. So, you know, this is a, there's an analysis of social movements that say that, um, you know, you can think about social movements uh, sort of in an, in an ecological way, that there's this kind of a social ecology to, to social movements, that there are certain people who are attracted, for instance, to doing like electoral politics and public policy work and right there are the people that sort of you know will go and advocate at the state house and they'll get doing model legislation and they're the lawyers and all those type of people that really like to get down on on policy there's the kind of you know there's also the sort of folks who are very much about like direct action not so much in terms of like working with the state but perhaps working against the state or trying to petition the state, people who are interested in doing the marches and the sit-ins and the civil disobedience, right? So the direct action kind of folk that are really interested in trying to push uh, public power in certain kinds of ways. And then there's this other kind of group that uh, folks call sort of prefigurative. So these are the kinds of people that decide to uh, do utopian work in social movements, meaning that they, th this was sort of like the role of the hippies in the 1960s and 70s, the flower children. They sort of, you know, rejected mainstream dominant society, but they went off and created communes or they were doing, you know, dropping out LSD and psychedelics and things like that. And a lot of artists are often attracted to this prefigurative work right, which is about trying to imagine a very sort of different kind of social space with different kinds of norms and creating spaces in which, you know, you can live that kind of life in the belly of the beast, so to speak, that gives you a sense of like a different way of doing things. And, you know, that this is like, this is a, a way of thinking about the ecology of social movements is that you need for social change and social transformation to happen, you need all of these elements working together. And sometimes these elements sort of like criticize one another and always don't get along. But, you know, there's an important space for the artists, the dreamers, the utopians and sort of providing a, uh, an opening for the imagination. And if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that you wanted to think about dance as a way of doing that art in general, but dance in particular. The reason I'm going lengthy in this is because, you know, one of the things that I was really kind of um, uh, 
what I learned from your work was the existence of this group of people in the 1930s and 40s that you uh, that you cite that you talk about, uh, the Workers Dance League, in uh, was it in New York City? Mm -hmm. Yeah, New York City. So, um, what what can you tell us about the Workers Dance League? Yeah, so the the Workers Dance League were uh, a bunch of modern dancers from about the 30s and 40s that were coming together uh, through leftist politics, whether it be socialists, the Communist Party, or whatnot, and um, forming uh, ways of making a revolutionary dance uh, for, for their time. And a lot of, you know, there was a lot of leftist politics going on, and especially in that kind of like uh, New York uh, arena at the time. Um, you know, this is kind of pre-World War II uh, and a lot of uh, Stalinist kind of politics coming into this. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what they're talking about there is that class struggle is also related to dance struggle. And so what that means is that the way it formulated in New York at the time was they created um, like the workers group. I can't remember the name of it now. Um, you know, through some of like FDR legislation, they were able to get public funding to support dance in a way that it hadn't been supported before. And this kind of allowed for, um, you know, different types of dance making to be made and to include different peoples uh, as well. Um, so you really feel like their leftist, uh, you know, choreography is something of my heritage. It is something uh, that I have a line to through some choreographers that I've worked with and that, you know, me practicing uh leftist choreographic dance making today is actually in that lineage um, of these founders of what, you know, basically what modern dance was going to look like. Yeah. See, this is, this is fascinating stuff. I mean, I love the, the sort of um, the statement, the motto that some of these folks had, right. That what is it? Uh, dance is a weapon in the revolutionary class, class struggle. Right, this is very interesting, and the way that you're describing that is, is is really fascinating because it's not just, um, you know, from what I what I read and what I looked uh, up about these folks is on the one hand they were devoted to class struggle in the sense that they were, you know, they would offer really inexpensive dance classes for working class folk uh, to be able to get them into a kind of an in inclusive space to sort of move their bodies. So they tried to open up their studios to, to uh, working class folk and make dance accessible in that kind of way, uh, rather than just seeing it being a bourgeois form of art. Uh, but then, you know, as you're pointing it out that, you know, they had a vision in terms of trying to use their art to portray a world that would be very different for workers. And then as you put it, they had, right, this kind of leftist choreography so that the very sort of movements and style of dance, they were trying to think about how that could reflect class struggle, 
right? So that's a that's an all-encompassing kind of philosophy for them that I find really, really fascinating. It wasn't just sort of like, oh, we're dancers and every once in a while we let in, you know, the poor kids from the poor part of town or something like that. But they were trying to really think about how to bring class struggle into the very forms and ways in which their bodies move to tell certain kinds of stories about what the world might be because of class struggle. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of the most fascinating things about um, about the Workers' Dance League and what they were doing is they had this struggle, right, between uh, when most dance units are going to have an audition for a performance, right? So it's always kind of like, well, what is the performance being made? And so in this kind of social service and an invitation to more lay people into their arena, you know, how do you, I think maybe this isn't this, I mean, this is definitely an unfulfilled project, but how do you invite a lay person in and be able to, or someone with less experience. And so, because these communities often become elite, you know, a certain kind of crop floats to the top and then, you know, though that's the circle and it's very hard to break into afterwards. And so I think in some ways they're actively working against that, especially since there was public money in it. It was kind of saying, well, how do we, uh, you know, how do we disrupt uh, hierarchy in this situation that is kind of about choosing the best dancer to be in your piece? And I think, um, you know, I think that's one of the, the biggest lessons I learned from uh, the Workers' Dance League and just kind of like what it means to relate to other dancers um, and what you do to create an inclusive space and, and what that does to the choreography as well. I mean, this obviously, depending on what kind of people you choose to be in your work, will uh, completely inform what it looks like. Yeah, that's fascinating. So what you know what you what you sort of see then in your work steps and strikes is you're as you put it you you see yourself in terms of the the lineage of this kind of uh, tradition of dance and that you see your film as exemplifying the ways in which dance and contemporary art in general can help us to think about the uh, the economic and environmental crises that we're facing now. So this is a really ambitious sort of project. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering when you were doing this film, what were the parts of it that you most enjoyed doing? Yeah, thank you for that question. Cause I think it's, it's always good to celebrate a project afterwards and kind of think about the, you know, the highlights. Um, so I think one of the highlights for me actually in kind of continuing the discussion we were just having is that the work is designed to, to be accessible. That's part of the reason why it is a 30 minute monologue I'm dancing on top of is that I want a lay person to be able to watch this film. Uh, I think other dance films, it would be less accessible. And so I think one of the good parts for me was sitting down to write this script and kind of thinking about layering dance on top of it and what that might look like and so and from the feedback I've received so far I think it does accomplish that to a pretty good degree and I'm really excited by that um, in terms of just production like I mentioned before I 
thought about this piece long before it became a film as a live production. And there's about a seven minute long shot there in the end where the film, where it doesn't cut. Um, and you're just kind of following uh, the, the, the camera is moving and it's also following me, the dancer, the figure in the space move, um, kind of working through an improvisational map or score. And in that, you know, this is, I love to perform, I love to improvise. And so in the kind of contained environment that is a film, this was the part that felt the most performative to me. And kind of interestingly, it was, you know, I came up with the, what we call a score, you know, the map of like what that, that improvisation was gonna look like. And I think we filmed it maybe four or five times. And it was just, I knew it. I knew it was when I, when I danced that particular version, I knew that was the one before I even got into the editing room and like reviewed everything. And so I think that was probably one of the most exciting moments and felt kind of like, oh, this thing is coming together. And also the other neat thing about it is that it's an ending and I struggled so much in this piece to try to figure out how, especially the text there in the end kind of does this left turn into the labor politics. And I was kind of thinking about, well, what are the images going to be on top of that? And um, yeah, it was just really fun for me to kind of struggle with what that ending might look like. And then just rely on kind of this experience that I've had since, you know, I was dancing since three years old of like what, you know, dance, let the dance be what it is and let the images and the text kind of do, do the work together. And yeah, that was definitely the highlight for me in making it. Uh, I definitely very much appreciate the way in which you're thinking about bringing this kind of prefigurative aspect, the kind of utopian, uh, uh, educational element about helping us to sort of open our minds to think about what can be possible and uh, the sort of uh, this kind of uh, concern with creating communities that can be empowered, imaginative and free in their bodies. I think all of that is, is fascinating work. And so I think that uh, I'm really excited to see where all of this goes for you. So, so congratulations on getting uh, all this done and uh, 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 good luck on uh, the next step in your career. Thank you, Joseph. Thanks for having me. It was really a pleasure to be here and get to talk about my work this way. Good. Well, and thank you all for joining us today. Uh, if you are interested in uh, thinking a little bit more about the ways in which art and particularly dance can help us to envision more radical futures in terms of social transformation or help us to think about how to mobilize people power, Drop us a line, leave us a comment, and uh, uh, let us know what you think. You can find the Anares Project uh, here, of course, on our video channel, but you can also find us uh, in all the socials. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and you can also find our audio podcasts on Anchor FM and Spotify and in other places where you can get your podcasts. Uh, so let us know what you think. Thank you once again, Shane, and uh, good luck, and we look forward to seeing you once again. Sounds good. Thank you.